Greetings, this is a reading of the book The Airship Golden Hide. Some of the language in this book has not aged well and is indeed no longer politically correct. Take caution when listening to this visual audio book. Footage and photography are provided by Fortations. At Fortations, we believe that the world would be a better place if people spent their time being creative join us in practicing art so we all can be the master of art. Find art prints available at our store www.fortationstore.com. Keep our artwork alive by making a donation at fortationsdonations.com. The Airship Golden Hind by Brissy F. Westerman Chapter 1 A Startling Proposition What's the Move? inquired Kenneth Kenyon. Ask me another. Old Sam replied his chum. Peter Bramson Fosterdyke is a cautious old stick, but he knows what's what. There's something in the wind. You mark my words. Then you're going to see him. Rather, and you too, old bean. Where's a pencil? We can't keep the telegraph boy waiting. Bramson tore a form from a pad Scribbled on it the reply fostered like Air Grange near Blanford. Yes, we'll expect motor tomorrow morning, and he had taken the initial step of a journey that man had never before attempted. Canyon and Bramson were both ex flying officers of the Royal Air Force. What they did in the Great War now matters little. Sufficient is it to say that had they belonged to any belligerent nation, save their own, they would have been styled aces. But since in the Royal Air Force details of personal achievements were deprecated, and the credit given to the force as a whole, they merely carried on until ordered to get out or, in other words, be demobilist. Then each was a highly prized decoration and a gratuity of precisely the same amount as that given to an officer who had never served anywhere save at the Hotel Cecil, they found themselves literally on their feet, relegated to the limbo of civilian life. It was not long before they found how quickly their gratuities diminished. Like many other ex-members of His Majesty's forces, they began to realize that in smashing the German menace they had helped to raise a menace at home the greed and cupidity of the profiteer. They were just two of thousands of skilled airmen for whom as such there was now no need. Commercial aviation had yet to be developed. Trick flying and exhibition flights lead to nothing definite and only a very small percentage of wartime airmen could be retained in the reconstituted Air Force. Kenyon and Bramsden were not meant to take it lying down. They had pluck and resource and a determination to get a move on, and within a twelve month of their demobilization, they found themselves partners and sole proprietors of a fairly prosperous road transport concern operating over the greater part of the south of England. But it wasn't the same thing as flying. 
Looking back over those strenuous years of active service, they remember vividly the good times they had had, while the sticky times were mellowed until they could afford to laugh at those occasions when they had the wind up badly. Then, with a suddenness akin to the arrival of a whiz bang, came a telegram from Sir Reginald Foster Dake asking the chums to see him on the morrow. Sir Reginald Foster Dake had been Bramston's and Kenyon's O.C. Or to employ Sir's phraseology, a wing commander on his demobilization, he went to live at Air Grange, a large old world house standing on high ground, a good five miles from Blandford. Very rarely he left his country house, his visits to town were few and far between, and his friends wondered at the reticence of the versatile and breezy Foster Dake. He seldom wrote to anyone when he did. His correspondence was brief and to the point. More frequently he telegraphed, and then he meant business. In pre-war days, Air Grange was famous for its week and house parties. The shooting, one of the best in the county of Dorset, was an additional source of attraction to Foster Dick's guests but the war, and afterwards had changed all that. Few, very few guests were to be found at Air Grange. The staff of servants was greatly reduced. The well-kept grounds developed a state of neglect. Sir Reginald's friends came to the conclusion that the baronet had become moldy. They wondered what possessed him to live an almost hermit-like existence. Foster Dyke knew their curiosity, but he merely shrugged his shoulders and carried on his work in the world of aviation was by no means ended. It might be said that it was yet a long way from attaining its zenith. Early on the morning following the receipt of the baronet's telegram, Sir Reginald's car pulled up in front of the premises used as the headquarters of the Southern Roads Transport Company Kenyon and Bramston, having given final instructions to the works foreman, a former flight sergeant R. F. jumped into the car and were soon whisking northwards at a speed that was considerably in excess of that fixed by the regulations. Although of a retiring disposition, Sir Reginald Fosterdyke had made a point of keeping in touch with his former officers. He had a sort of personal interest in every one of them, and on their part, they regarded him as one of the best. Whenever on rare occasion, Foster Dyke ran down to Bournemouth, he invariably looked up Bransden and Kenyon to talk over old times, but being invited to Air Grange was quite a different matter. Vaguely, the chums wondered what it might mean, conjecturing ideas that somehow felt to be convincing, yet they knew that there was something in the wind. They knew Sir Reginald and his methods. Through Blandford, up and past the now deserted hutments where formerly German prisoners led an almost idyllic existence in their enemy's country, the car sped on until it gained the lofty downs in the direction of Shaftesbury, then turning up a steep 
and narrow lane, the car drew up at the gate of Aragrange Inhabitant. There was no gatekeeper to unlock, and Doe opened the massive iron gates, a task the chauffeur had to perform, stopping the car again in order to make secure the outer portals of Sir Reginald's domain. While the car remained stationary, the two occupants looked in vain for a glimpse of the house. All they could see was a winding, weed-grown road with a thick belt of pine trees on either hand to the left of the road and under the lee of the trees were half a dozen wooden huts unmistakably of a type known as temporary military quarters. Smoke issuing from the chimneys suggested the idea that they were in occupation and a couple of Dunkari-clad men carrying a length of copper pipe on their shoulders confirmed the fact somewhere from behind the trees came the sharp rattle of a pneumatic drilling machine. Kenyon glanced at his companion. What's the old man up to, I wonder? He inquired quite a labor colony. Look, air flasks to by Joe. A pile of rusty wrought iron cylinders stacked on the grass by the side of the path recalled visions of bygone days. Something doing, that's evident, agreed Bramsden with the stunt, and why are we hiked into it? Wait and see, old Bert, replied Kenyon. The chauffeur regained the car and slipped in the clutch. For a full another quarter of a mile, the car climbed steadily, negotiating awkward corners in the ruddy, winding path, until Emerging from the wood, it pulled up outside the house of Foster Duck. No powdered footman awaited them on the steps, clad in worn but serviceable tweeds, stood Sir Reginald Foster Duck himself. The Baron generally referred to by his former officers as the old man was of medium height, broad shoulder, and deep chested. He was about thirty-five years of age, with well-bronzed features, clean-shaven, and possessed a thick crop of closely-cut dark brown hair tinged with iron gray. He held out his left hand as Kenny and Bramson ascended the stone steps. His right hand was enveloped in surgical bandages and greeted his guests warmly. Glad to see you, boys, he exclaimed. It's good of you to come have a glass of shea. He lit away to the steady, rang a bell, and gave instructions to a manservant whom Kenyon recognized as the O. See this bad man somewhere in France. Sir Reginald sat on the edge of the table and whimsically regarded his former subordinates. At that moment, rising above the staccato rattle of the pneumatic hammer, came the unmistakable wire of an aerial propeller to Kenyon and Bramston. It was much the same as a trumpet call to an old workhorse. Sounds like old times, at remarked Sir Reginald. Rather, Sarah agreed Kenyon heartily, and at a loss to express himself further, he relapsed into silence. Experimental work, Sir inquired Bramston. Foster Dyke nodded. 
Yes, you reply, in level tones. Experimental work, that's it, that's why I send for you. I'm contemplating a flight round to world keen on having a shot at it. 